You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. And now I ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms, the 107th Psalm. This is a rather lengthy psalm, and we're only going to look at a portion of it together today. But I would like to begin by reading with you verses 1 through 3 of the 107th psalm, and then we'll jump to verses 23 and following in a few moments. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now if you will turn and look at verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, by the way, are numbered among those whom God has redeemed, who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. It's generally agreed that General George S. Patton was the foremost field commander in World War II on either side of that conflict. It was in 1944 that he led the Third Army sweeping across France. So rapid was his advance that his supplies could not even keep up with him. They had to be airdropped into him. And then he was part of the engagement which came to be known as the Battle of the Bulge. And weather set in so that his army could not move. And he called his chief chaplain in and said, Chaplain, I want you to write a weather prayer. The chaplain had never been asked to do such a thing. And he said, I'm not sure I can do that. And Patton commanded him to do it. And he did it. And the result was that the weather lifted, resulting in a swifter conclusion to what we know as World War II, at least as it was experienced in the European theater. George Patton knew what all wise men know, that God is in control of the elements. God is sovereign over the weather. The truth of the matter is God is sovereign over everything. If there's anything which we can say about God is that he is Lord of creation. I love the fact that we sang, we bow down. He is Lord of every aspect of our lives individually and of history collectively. Someone has rather wisely said that history really is his story. It's the story of God's involvement in people's lives. 
including the storms of their lives, not just the physical storms, like the storm that was seeking to stop the advancement of the Allied forces to conquer the forces of Hitlerism, but also the storms in our own lives. In a group this large, there are all kinds of storms represented. There are relational storms. There are physical storms. There are spiritual storms. The truth of the matter is, storms abound. And in your life, you have had storms. Storms which have sought to crush you. And your presence here this morning indicates that somehow or another you've been able to survive those storms. And what we want to look at together today from this passage of Scripture is what are the purposes for the storms in our lives. Now, let me back off and make some observation about storms in general. Are you fascinated by storms? Do you ever turn the Discovery Channel on and find s stories about floods and they capture your attention or stories about tornadoes and they capture your attention? Last night I was flipping through the channels, I came to CNN, and I was immediately riveted because I noticed that the scene was the scene of the aftermath of a terrible storm, or storms probably, which swept through central Arkansas yesterday. Little Rock was rocked by these storms. And then I turned to the Weather Channel because my family lives about 120 miles to the east of Little Rock. And I know that the weather generally moves in an easterly direction when it's bad like that. And I noticed the weather reporter said that there was a bad cell southwest of Memphis moving up toward Memphis where my family lives. You know, when I consider storms, I'm fascinated by them. Sometimes I have sort of a detached fascination, though. But when those storms begin to affect people whom I love, I really get interested. Has that ever happened in your life? The truth is, there may not be a storm going on in your life today or in my life today, but I can promise you that there are storms which have broken out in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as part of the body of Christ, even though we may not be directly affected by the storms that are going on in others' lives, Indirectly, we are because they are part of our family. Just like my concern over that wave of storms moving eastward was heightened because my family might have been affected by the storms. So when these storms begin to assail the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be no less interested than we would be if they were attacking our own family because we are part of the body of Christ. We need to understand this. Now, let me say another thing about the fascination which we have with storms. I can be fascinated in a detached, rather objective way with regard to storms. And sometimes I get downright nosy about storms in other people's lives. Has that ever happened to you? There's a tendency on our part, those of us who are not in the middle of a storm, whether it's a relational storm or some other sort of storm of difficulty, in somebody else's life, there's a tendency for us to actually imagine this become critical of the person who's in the storm. May I tell you, there are storms which are seen in people's lives, but I know, and probably you do too, that there are many more storms which could easily be described as secret storms.
which are going on in people's lives. People who we might think have it all together and we have no clue about what's going on in their lives. Let me tell you, don't assume that because everything seems placid on the surface in a brother or sister in Christ's life that they don't have difficulty too. Life is filled with difficulty. Life is filled with storms. Having said these things preliminarily, let us now return to our text of Scripture. As we return there, what I would add to what I've already said is, it's a pleasure for me to witness people like you, many of you, who have survived storms reaching out to people who are right in the middle of a storm. It's only survivors of storms who can really minister to people who are in the midst of a storm. I really quite honestly feel sorry for Christians who haven't experienced storms in their lives because they really don't quite understand the depth of difficulty that others are going through. But those of us who have experienced storms to one degree or another can be used by God to minister to other people's lives. What does this text of Scripture teach us about the purpose of storms? Now remember, who is the designer of storms? Before we go any further, let me refresh you just a moment. Who designs storms? Who's in charge of storms? Now this may not be real easy to listen to in part today, but it's true nevertheless. God is the designer of storms. This passage of Scripture says as much, and the whole Bible reiterates that quite honestly. The first thing this passage of Scripture teaches us is that storms are designed to strip us of our self-reliance. Look at verse 23 again of Psalm 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, that is, these are people who make their living from the sea, one way or the other, either right out of the sea, or they use the sea to get them from point A to point B to conduct business. Verse 24 says, They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Now, the Hebrews were not known as a seafaring people. In fact, they viewed the sea as both mysterious and menacing. They were quite fearful of the sea, and understandably so. So those from among the Jews who would go out to sea, those who were mentioned in this passage of Scripture, were rather unusual Jews in the sense that they showed great courage and they took great risk in going out to sea. They were people who, among all the Jews, were most self-confident or self-reliant in the way in which they approached their lives. Self-confidence, in the worst sense of the word, self-reliance, independence from God, is a sure recipe for a stormy life because God is intent upon stripping us of self-reliance. Storms make weaklings out of the strongest among us, though. Let's read a little further in this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 25. For he spoke, that is God, and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They, and this is referring to the sailors, not the waves themselves, although the waves were lifting them up, they rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Isn't this a picture? Rising up on the crest of the wave, then being taken down into the trough of the wave. I read just this week in Newsweek magazine about 
a place 100 miles off the coast of Southern California, roughly located between San Diego and Los Angeles, known as the Cortez Bank. The Cortez Bank is a place where the sea actually rises up underneath the earth, rises up underneath the sea, and as waves come in, there are some waves that reach 50 feet in height regularly there, not in stormy times, but in normal times. And a group of professional surfers went into that area, amazingly, I can't imagine this, showing great courage, they went into this area, or idiocy, I'm not quite sure which, went into this area last month and rode those gigantic waves. And they rode them, and they had to ride them with the help of a wave runner because those waves are not only 50 feet high, but they race at the speed of 30 to 50 miles per hour, and a wave runner has to pull the surfer at 40 miles an hour just so the surfer can stay ahead of the wave. That is a powerful force, and those are the kinds of forces that are in mind in this passage of Scripture, where these sailors are raised up to the heavens on the ships, then down to the depths. And notice what happens. Their soul melted away in their misery. The word translated melted away in its most basic form in Hebrew means make soft. Their souls were made soft. Are you beginning to get a picture as to why God allows storms to enter your life? Yes, to strip you of self-reliance, but to make a hard heart soft. Now, you may think your heart is already supple in the hands of God, but would you agree with me that there's always the possibility of further softening of the heart before God? By all means, none of us reaches a place of complete suppleness in the hands of God. And so the soul melted away. This word is used in contrast or in tandem with the word which means shaken in Nahum chapter 1 verse 5 elsewhere in the Old Testament. So the idea here conveyed in this word of melting away includes the idea of making soft but also carries with it a figure of helpless, disorganized terror. Here are these brave, risk-taking Jewish sailors going out to do business. However, what do we discover happening? In the face of this monstrous storm, the biggest storm that they've ever faced, the result is that they become like little children fearfully trembling in the face of the storm. Now, I don't know if you have ever experienced that kind of fear in your life because of a storm which has entered your life. Somebody may be here today in that situation in your life. If you have or you are, understand the purpose behind it. From God's viewpoint, it's designed to strip you or to strip me of our self-reliance. Now let's read further. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. Certainly this is, again, a picture of men aboard ship a ship that's being tossed to and fro by the waves and the wind, and they're just going from one side of the ship to the other. And notice this last statement in verse 27, and they were at their wit's end. Perhaps your translation, like mine, has a marginal reading, which is a literal translation of this very good interpretation of describing where they were at their wit's end, and it states as follows, all their wisdom was swallowed up. Do you understand what David is writing here? All their wisdom was swallowed up. They were out of wisdom. What could he have had in mind? The New English Bible says their seamanship was swallowed up. 
Now remember, these sailors were not merely risk takers, they were also more than likely expert sail, sail sailors. They knew what to do when they got on the sea. It was in the area of their expertise that the storm of life came sweeping into them and just wreaked havoc in their lives. Things like hurricanes and other gigantic forces in the world show us that we live more by permission in our lives than by good management of our lives. God gives us permission to live in this way. I wonder if there's anybody here today who is at wit's end. May I just remind you of something? When you're at the end of your rope, Jesus Christ is on the other end of the rope. Do you remember the story out of the life of Jesus and his disciples when they were on the Sea of Galilee? And remember that we know that at least four of his disciples made their living on the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 4 that all of a sudden, and isn't that the way that storms come into our lives? All of a sudden, boom, you're fired, your boss tells you. Or boom, I don't love you anymore, your spouse tells you. Or boom, you've got a tumor, your doctor tells you. All of a sudden, things are going so well, and out of the blue, a storm comes sweeping down, just like those storms would come off of Mount Hermon, Hermon rather, in the Sea of Galilee region, and they would hurtle their winds down the ravines, and as the winds would come down the ravines, the wind would be compressed, and then finally would burst onto the Sea of Galilee like an avalanche. And, and that was the case here in Mark chapter 4. And the sailors, where were they? The four of them, they were in their area of expertise, and they were bailing water like crazy. And where was Jesus? Where was he? He was asleep. And remember, they finally, in more than likely anger, awoke Jesus. And they said, Master, don't you care? Don't you know what's going on with us? Well, Jesus knew, and certainly Jesus cared. But Jesus looked at them and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you get afraid when storms enter your life? Why, of course you do. If you're human, you do. I get afraid when storms enter my life. But remember the reason for storms, at least one from this passage of Scripture, designed to strip us of our self-reliance. I guarantee you, after those disciples saw Jesus quell the storm, they never got in a boat again without remembering that experience. And Jesus not only chided them for their fear, but what else did he do? He said, you need to have faith. You need to have faith. Some of you are basketball fans like I am, and if you are, you've probably heard the voice and seen the face of a man named Clark Kellogg. Clark is the color commentator, and he sits alongside Greg Gumbel. He's also the color commentator for the Indiana Pacers NBA team when he's not commentating for the CBS Sports News. Well, what you may not know about him is that he was the seventh person picked in the NBA draft in 1982. He, as a six-foot, eight-inch man and a very nimble athlete, went to 
have a rather good career, actually. He averaged, and this is a lot of points in the NBA, 18.9 points and 9.6 rebounds throughout his career. But his career was shortened because of a storm which entered his life, a physical storm. The storm was in the form of bad knees. And after wrestling with this one for a couple of years, he finally decided that he should cash it in. Listen to what he said about that time in his life. It was during that time that I got pulled out of the busyness and tunnel visionness of playing in the NBA. I had some time to think, and I think God used that time to draw me to him. Now that's a storm, and what did God use it for? To draw him, that is Clark Kellogg, to God. The Bible says that we typically don't go to God. And I, I would say he probably meant in times that are good. God uses situations or circumstances or people to draw us to himself. I think God uses circumstances and situations as well as people to draw us to who he is and what he desires for us and in us. Only he can give us, and it's through Christ, a real purpose and direction based on his own unchanging word. That's a great testimony of how God uses a storm in a person's life to get his attention. Many of you are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis. Some consider the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. He was giving an opportunity for people to interact with him, and a question was asked for him. This question, by the way, and answer is found in a collection of essays by Lewis entitled God in the Dock. And listen to the question. Many people feel resentful or unhappy because they think they are the target of unjust fate. These feelings are stimulated by bereavement, illness, deranged domestic or working conditions, or the observation of suffering in others. What is the Christian view of this problem? The questioner asked C.S. Lewis, and this was his response. The Christian view is that men were created to be in a certain relationship to God. Christ said it was difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, referring no doubt to riches in the ordinary sense. But I think it really covers riches in every sense, good fortune, health, popularity, and all the things one wants to have. All these things tend, just as money tends, to make you feel independent of God. Because if you have them, you are happy already and contented in this life. You don't want to turn away to anything more, and so you try to rest in a shadowy happiness as if it could last forever. But God wants to give you a real and eternal happiness. Consequently, he may have to take all these riches away from you. If he doesn't, you will go on relying on them. If the, it sounds cruel, doesn't it? But I'm beginning to find out that what people call the cruel doctrines are really the kindest ones in the long run. I used to think it was a cruel doctrine to say that troubles and sorrows were punishments. But I find in practice that when you are in trouble, the moment you regard it as a punishment, it becomes easier to bear. That's an interesting insight, isn't it? If you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. Quite a bit of wisdom from the pen of C.S. Lewis in this regard. So, if storms are designed to strip us of self-reliance, what else are they designed for? To stir us to God-reliance. That's the whole reason for God's allowing storms to turn us to himself. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4, God is described in this way, a shelter 
from the storm. Have you ever found God to be a shelter from a storm in your life? May I tell you, you and I need to make a beeline for God the minute a storm raises its ugly head in our lives. When we turn to God in troubled times, God brings us peace. Let's return to our passage of Scripture, verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. And the word translated still means to whisper. Here was the storm which had been roaring, and all of a sudden it's calmed to a whisper. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking to the winds and the waves? He said, be still. Actually, the word was a word used to describe the muzzling of a demon earlier in Mark's gospel. So when Jesus said, be still, actually it was only one word he was saying, muzzle. And immediately the wind and the waves obeyed Jesus and stopped, showing that Jesus, like his heavenly Father, is sovereign over the elements as well. And here we see that they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. They cried out to the Lord in their distress. One, one of, if not the most fascinating figure in the Bible to me, besides Jesus himself, is Job. You know the story of Job? Job was the greatest man on earth in his particular period in history. Job was a man who had everything going his way. He was a man who had, according to Job chapter 1, he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, and 500 she-donkeys. He was a man who'd been blessed with wonderful children. He had seven sons and three daughters. And then the Bible tells us that Satan came before God and asked him, or God asked Satan, where have you been? He said, walking to and fro throughout the earth. He's like a hungry lion, isn't he? According to the word of God, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then in the conversation, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is no man like him on earth? There is no one who is blameless and upright like he is, who fears God and turns away from evil. He's a man of incredible integrity is what God was saying. And then God gave permission to Satan to sift him like wheat. It was like a storm on the horizon in his life. And this was no mere storm. This was an incredible storm. This was a category six, if there were such a thing, on the scale of God's permitting storms to happen in our lives. And you know how the storm unfolds. First of all, Job unsuspectingly, suddenly, receives a report from one of his servants that the Sabbateans have come. And what they did was that they took away, they stole all of the livestock from Job. And then word comes from another quarter that a storm has come and the tent has collapsed where the children of Job were having a party and it was the eldest son's tent, and it collapsed, and it killed all ten at one time. Do you remember what Job did? The Bible said he did what is very normal for anybody who's real to do. The Bible says he shaved his head. That was a sign of grief. He tore his garments, another sign of grief. He fell on the ground. 
Wouldn't it put you on the ground if you received information like that? And then the Bible says he, we would think it would say he cried, but rather the Bible said he worshiped. He did the thing that went against the grain of common sense. He worshiped the Lord. He didn't worship the God with a, with a smile on his face, I promise you that. He worshiped God in spite of the way he felt. He wept, I'm sure, as he worshiped the Lord. He said, naked I came forth from my mother's womb, and naked I shall go there. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that wasn't the end of his problem. The rest of his problem included his becoming sick. In fact, he became loathsomely sick, the Bible says. That means he was so sick nobody wanted to be around him. His breath was was fouled. The sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head probably made him stink. And people didn't want to look at him. And they didn't want to smell him. Now here was a man who had sat in the gate. He was the chief elder. People from all over came to him for advice. And now nobody wanted to have anything to do with him except three so-called friends who had a, an interpretation of what was going on in his life that was all wet. They kept saying, there's just something wrong with you, Job. There's something wrong with you, Job. There's something wrong with you, Job. And certainly he had things that were wrong with him. But God was the one who was permitting the storm to occur in his life to strip him of self-reliance and to stir him to God-reliance. And Job's wife came to him, looked at him, probably shook her head, and just said, curse God and die, Job. Curse God and die. And then Job said, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive bad from his hand? And we know from this side of that story, the New Testament side, on this side of the death of Jesus, on this side of the resurrection of Christ, what we know is that God does cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As hard, hard as it is to go through storms, as painful as it is to live in a storm, what we know is that God can take something ugly and make something beautiful out of it as we move in a deeper dependence upon God, just like Job did. When Job finally saw God <clears throat> through that experience, do you remember what he said? Until now my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself. What was he saying? That there was nothing of value in him? I don't think so. He was saying, I despise and repent in dust and ashes of all self-reliance. All self-reliance. Because I have finally seen you. I really know you. And God restored him. He restored his fortune. He restored family to him. God, I know, did an incredible work in Job. Paul, the apostle, maybe the best Christian who's ever lived, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when he was undergoing difficulty, he said, we were under great hardship, far beyond our ability to endure, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. What's your storm today? Everything may be going beautifully for you, but there's some people here today who have storms in their lives. What is your storm? You know what God wants to do through the storm? He wants to show you that he raises the dead. God is the one who can take a deadly situation and bring something constructive out of it.
When we turn to God, I repeat, in troubled times, God brings us peace. Just like Jesus still the sea. And here's a proverb that we can take from Jesus' stilling the sea. When he was in the boat and his disciples thought he didn't even care about what was going on with him, here is a principle we can derive from that story. As long as Jesus is in the boat, the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Is Jesus in your boat? Is he in your life? Well, he's at the other end of the rope, and you may be at the end of your rope, but remember that he's there, and he's not going to let you sink. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Therefore, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul writes, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that when Paul writes that the Philippians, he doesn't promise that God's going to answer their prayer the way they ask. There's no evidence of that. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. What was he getting at? What he's getting at is exactly what we've seen from this study this morning is this, that God is in control. God is sovereign. God permits the storm to strip you and me of self-reliance. God quietens the storm after we have come to him and said, we need you, Lord. We see our utter need of dependence for you. And when we turn to God in troubled times, God brings himself praise. There's nothing quite as beautiful, and I've been privy to this more than you have, I'm sure, because of my role as a pastor. There's nothing quite as beautiful in my experience of life to see a person who knows God through Jesus Christ who has gone through incredible suffering, suffering that I can't even begin to approximate even in my imagination, gone through incredible suffering and pain, yet comes out on the other side of that and worships the Lord. It's incredible when I see that. It builds my faith. It glorifies the Lord. Look at verses 31 and 32 of this passage. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of elders. The greatest worshipers of God are like Job, who've experienced great storms in their lives, but in the teeth of those storms have refused, against all odds they have refused to curse God. Rather, they have chosen to worship God because they know that God is a sovereign God who is in control of their life. Well, I'd like to finish what I'm saying today by referring you to something which Jesus says. And we can always be on good ground when we go to what Jesus says, right? Matthew chapter 7, when he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who founded his house upon the rock, built his house upon the rock. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house, yet 
the house did not fall. He went on to say, everyone who does not, who hears my words and does not act on them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and burst against the house and it fell and its fall was great. Two men inhabiting two houses which each one had built, experiencing the same storm. One stood the test of the storm. The other collapsed under the pressure. What was the difference? The difference is very clear. The man who was able to withstand the storm listened to the voice of Jesus. The man whose life was torn upside down by the storm didn't. For you and for me, when we face storms, you may not have a storm going on right now in your life, but more than likely, I don't mean to be a doomsayer, but more than likely, you're going to have a storm someday. And the way you deal with it is the way Jesus prescribes in Psalm 107, verse 20, if you're still in 107th Psalm, look at the first part of verse 20. He sent his word and healed them. God has given us his word. Jesus has given us his word to heal us when we've been hurt by storms. So my encouragement to you is simply the word of Jesus today. Remember that when storms come, they're not without God's permission and they're by design given to us to strip us of self-reliance to move us toward God-reliance. And as we trust the word of Christ and obey Christ in the midst of this crisis, the storm in which we find ourselves, then God will lift us above and he will heal us with his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We want to ask you, Lord, to help us <clears throat> to deal with the storms of life positively. And Father, when we're not in a storm, help us to look around us and not view others' storms in a detached nor a judgmental manner. Yet, Lord, help us to reach out and love them and to pray for them, to care for them in their time of difficulty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.